session with Dr. Farid Hulaku. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolaku, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So last week, uh, Monday was a holiday and Wednesday I didn't do a show, so uh, doing some book catch-up. So tonight I'll do the book of the week from two weeks ago, uh, and then Wednesday I'll do the book of the week from last week, which is The Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka. And I, a couple years ago, read a book by Franz Kafka, a short one, but it was a letter to his father. Um, and in that, from what I read people writing about, uh, that book was that you can see a lot of his relationship with his father play out in his other works and so um, wanted to read one of his novels and this is one of his more famous ones the metamorphosis by franz kafka i'll talk about that on wednesday's show but the book of the week from two weeks ago that i'll talk about tonight is why we fight by christopher blattman why we fight the roots of war and the paths to peace and the book could have just as easily been titled Why We Don't Fight, because a lot of what Christopher Blattman discusses in the book is that although we tend to think of war as so inevitable and war as the natural tendency that we experience, he describes how most of the time we don't get to war, um, even if two groups, societies, whatever it might be, don't like each other, have tension, have lots of difficulties or issues, getting to war usually does not happen. And so if we look at the history books, we'll see the wars, but that's because those are the more significant and impactful types of events that occur, but they are not the more common outcomes. So that's kind of like a myth that's that gets dispelled early in the book. And he also describes because of that, oftentimes when people try to understand the roots of war, what caused a war, they'll say certain factors that sound right, like let's say some kind of poverty or um, some type of an effect that we tend to think of as contributing to conflict, like one bad event happening. But he says that those types of things happen other times as well. But he says there's these five roots to war that tend to be the causes of war, usually in some kind of combination, not just one of them, which I'll get to them. And so it's actually those are the root causes, not the ones that we often think about. And so to truly understand conflict and how to get to peace, how to understand war and peace, we need to know the the actual roots, which he thinks are uh, boiling down to five. Now, to understand why we don't tend to fight, that that's actually what he's saying is, the more common occurrence and outcome. And when I say fight, uh, he says that in the title, but he means war as in a longer term, um, violent type of a interaction between two groups. So there might be a one act or a few acts that happen back and forth, but for it to extend to a prolonged war, 
that is less common. So he introduces some game theory, and in a simplified way of looking at it, if you consider when, let's say, two groups are fighting over one country, or two countries are fighting to basically have both countries, let's say, in some kind of simplified way, and if both of these countries have a 50% chance of winning, what they basically recognize is that if they go to war, what always will happen is in war there's going to be damage. Both lives will be lost, but also whatever you're fighting over will be damaged. Think about Europe after World War II. Um, there was a lot that was damaged there. Of course, many millions of lives lost, but also just the, the countries were decimated by the fighting. So if we tabulate, as he says, 20% of the uh, countries will be destroyed based on the war from the effects of the war, then even if you flip a coin, if you win, you basically get 40%, um, or you have a 40% chance, basically, of getting what you want, or you have a 100% chance of getting 80%, I should say, which means that... Um, Sorry, I'm saying that wrong. You have a 50% chance of getting 80%, which is like an expected value of 40%. But if you find a peaceful way to split things up, you basically would get 50% anyway. So in a type of game theory way of breaking things down, we can see that the default actually tends to be not wanting to fight because war is very costly. And you, of course, can lose completely. But even if you win, you would get less. So most of the time it makes sense. Let's find a way to be peaceful. And so that's why, as he says, although there are these great wars that get a lot of attention, as they understandably should, but more often than not, we avoid war and societies tend not to go to war. But he does say there's these five routes to war that he um, describes that are the most important ones. And so I'll go through each of those. The, the first one is unchecked interests. And so unchecked interests basically comes down to when the cost of war is not necessarily going to be felt as much by the people in power, which tends to be the case. So we see that even, let's say, in the United States right now, where the people in power, um, the politicians and also the wealthy, don't tend to get affected by wars when they happen, especially now when the war never happens on U.S. soil. Um, so the risk is not going to be there. So that can be one factor, and we see this throughout history, that the people in power often can gain a lot from the conflict, but they might not risk so much, or the, the risk will be felt by them less. So there can be unchecked interests. The second reason he cites is what he calls intangible incentives. So this is where people, of course, we tend to avoid violence, but if they are fighting for something like religion or some sense of freedom or an injustice, they might then change the bargaining um, distribution of when it might make sense for them or when they're likely to fight. And sometimes it can even make it where they'll fight no matter what. If, for example, one country or one area or one leader wants to impose a religion on a group that they don't want to accept it, and it doesn't matter for what, they're willing to die for it, well, then they will lead to violence. So sometimes we have these intangible incentives. It's not just about, let's say, land or wealth or resources. It's about something bigger than that. The next one is uncertainty. And so he talks about things like in poker where you bluff, where of course the example I gave is as if you know you have a 50% chance of winning, but you really don't know how strong 
your opponent is, and you also understand that a, a person or a group, a country, will want to make themselves seem stronger because they know then they can ask for more. So because we know people will bluff, it actually makes sense to not always believe their bluff because you know that that means you will in the long run uh, lose. Just like in poker, if you listen to everyone every time they bet that they have a strong hand, you in the long run will lose because people could just essentially push you around. So when we look at it, this in a type of international um, diplomacy or inter international interactions, we can see that uh, countries will do things like military parades, right? It's a way of showing how strong you are. But also countries will try to show that they're stronger than they are. And so because of this uncertainty, sometimes this can be a root cause or a contributing factor to people or, or groups or countries uh, getting to war. The fourth is something called a commitment problem. And this is where if one group has the power, but another group seems to be getting the power, while that group is on the way down, they, of course, can say, well, when you have the power, you'll promise to give us something, so let's make it peaceful. But it's very hard to expect, and there's no way to really enforce that they'll keep that commitment. So sometimes we'll see when a country, a group is losing power and another group is coming up on the way down or before they are losing that power, they might fight in some way to try to weaken them before we get to that point, because it's hard to assume that when that group has the power, they won't use or abuse it in ways that makes the formerly powerful group um, very unhappy. So there might be reasons why it might feel right to fight. And the last one is misperceptions. So again, in the example I gave that he talks about in the book, it's a very simplified way of knowing things are 50-50 and things are split in this certain way. But we often, of course, misperceive. We don't know. Uh, we think we know better than we do. We think our enemy is just like us when maybe they're not. Uh, or we think they're worse than they are when maybe they're not. And so for lots of reasons, we also might misperceive the situation. And because of that, that can lead to war. Uh, and as he says, these rarely are enough on their own, but it's in combination that we can see these five roots in some way combine to then intermingle and create the right type of circumstances that might lead to a war or some type of prolonged fighting. Um, and he says that there are also things that prevent war as well. So he talks about the roots to war and also more paths to peace throughout the book as well. And so there are a few factors he shares related to that. One is interdependence. And so the more we realize, whether it's through actual seeing how we're interdependent or a feeling of interdependence when we have camaraderie and connection with one another, the more interdependent we feel and genuinely are, uh, the less likely we are to fight. So they even see this in some regions where there are, let's say, groups of different ethnicities or different religions in a, in a similar city to other ones. The ones where they've created more type of a camaraderie and a, and a mutual relationship, which could be commercial, for example, or it could be um, connecting on some other variable or some other way, they're less likely to fight there. So it might seem kind of common sense, but we also can recognize the world is interdependent. And so we can see that if you, let's say, uh, launch a nuclear bomb in some country, first of all, they might re retaliate. We can also see it's going to have a huge effect on the environment. I remember even when I was in, I think, high school learning about nuclear winter, that this well, could happen if many atomic bombs go off and it creates 
these huge mushroom clouds, and then that's going to affect the sun and affect the, the sunlight that comes in and all sorts of things that can affect you even if uh, you feel like, well, you're bombing another place. That interdependence that we're sharing the same environment can come to play. But interdependence can show up in many ways from very small groups to big groups. But the more interdependent we feel and are, the less likely we are to get to war. We see this also happening with our economies, where, where we might be enemies with a country, um, but we have some kind of economic interests that are mutual, uh, and that can create some issues. And, and this book was written and released just actually recently, but of course he had to have been writing it for a while, uh, the Ukraine crisis and the uh, Russia attacking Ukraine can be understood in some of these contexts as well. Um, so that's one of them. Another one is checks and balances. So here we hear that a lot in the in the U.S. government. If you're a student in elementary school, middle school, high school, you hear about checks and balances and how there's three branches of the U.S. government, which is good because that balances the power that no one person or even one group or one branch of the government has too much power and they all check one another. And this is, I think, a very important human quality that when you give anyone unchecked power, it's going to lead to abuse, no matter who it is, what it is, how noble they are, how noble the group is, unchecked power always leads to bad consequences. So when we see groups and they have a country or a society, they have polycentric type of way where there's many centers to the power, that is better than when it's in the hands of a few. Uh, also, he talks about rules and enforcement, things like the law, state, and social norms also contribute to peace and making peace more likely to be sustained. And he also talks about interventions that, that groups do, whether it's from inside the country or outside the country. And he does talk about things like the UN, which at times uh, groups that go in as peacekeeping missions with, from the UN are, are told or we hear that they don't do much or they do small things, but he talks about how the small things actually can go a long way. So yes, it might seem like they're ineffectual in certain ways, but they can actually have a big effect um, long term, which also gets to the end of the book, which I'll, I'll carry over into the next segment because I think it's very important. Uh, he talks about piecemeal types of progress or small steps that lead to progress and how usually that's how progress happens or gets done. Uh, we tend to have these utopian visions. Politicians uh, and revolutionaries might promise some kind of utopian vision that we're going to change this and then everything's going to be okay and we're going to fix this problem. But almost all uh, complex problems have complex and complicated solutions that take time. And so he talks about how we have to look at things from that approach. So I'll continue on the book and what he talks about related to this type of piecemeal type of progress um, and some thoughts on that as well. So that's the book, Why We Fight by Christopher Blattman. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Continuing the discussion on the book, Why We Fight by Christopher Blattman. And at the end of the book, he shares some more of his insights on peace and also comes up with these, what he calls the piecemeal commandments with these kind of like these 10 commandments that he has of ways to help promote peace or uh, things to keep in mind when you're trying to promote peace. There are well, very, a lot of uh, well-intended people who come up with ideas, as I mentioned, often can be utopian or for some other reasons might not work. And he shares some insights on 
what's more likely to make them work. And it's a play on words, piecemeal. Um, so there's the word piecemeal, P-I-E-C-E-M-E-A-L, which means that when something changes in small, sometimes unsystematic ways or steps, um, that's that kind of piecemeal. And he, but he's saying piecemeal, changing it to piece, as in P-A-C-E, the beginning of the word. So kind of like taking these small steps towards peace, but recognizing that it tends to be these small tinkerings that we do that gets us towards peace, not necessarily some big steps. And it's taken from, as he cites, Karl Popper playing on his um, talking about a piecemeal engineer and how with small steps we get to something good. He was talking about trying to engineer peace in different ways. And what I thought was important about the insights in that part of the book at the end was recognizing that of course, we have big aims. Our peace is a huge one, but it doesn't mean it's going to happen all in big steps or some kind of sweeping change. At times it does, but usually it's through small steps that we get there. And things like peace, um, in a way, can seem very simple, right? Peace is like absence of fighting. It's more than that. Uh, as he talks about, it's not having no conflict. I forgot who that quote was from, but it's essentially, it's not about having no conflict, but it's about dealing with conflict peacefully. Because just like in any relationship between two people, you're going to inevitably have conflicts that arise. It's not about if you have conflict, it's about how you deal with your conflict. The same thing is true of any uh, groups, countries, towns, cities, individuals of different groups, whatever they might be we're still going to have conflict that arises because we at times will have different interests that will conflict, we'll be sharing some kind of resources, we will upset each other in some way. So it's not about avoiding conflict of any kind, but it's how do we deal with conflict and can we deal with our conflicts in ways that end up being peaceful rather than end up in war and death. And that's what we're trying to avoid. So in a way, it's easy to say, don't fight or deal with things peacefully, but how do you actually execute that? And how do you make people uh, like each other or care about each other? What's interesting is often when you enter or hear about a group of people that don't like each other without knowing the history and without experiencing it, it can seem silly when people don't like each other or when people are two groups like, okay, come on, just figure it out. It's not a big deal. But it's very different when you're in that conflict or that conflictual relationship. So one thing you have to always be aware of when you go to some other group, even as a therapist, when you're meeting with a family or a couple, that usually their problems in some ways, although family relationships or couple relationships are complex and dynamic, they can seem simple, but you have to recognize that you don't know what it's like to go through living through that conflict. And it's always going to feel that way. And another thing is when we think of other people and whatever it is in their life, it's very easy to just think of it in some kind of rational, logical way without feelings. But when you're in anything, you have feelings too. So um, people, whatever your problem is, someone can say, oh, it's so easy, just do this, which partially is true, but that's because they're not actually going through it. And they likely have something they themselves struggle with that might be easy for you or is easy for other people. So he does share this insight that I think is very important that we take small steps and often revolutions do happen, but most revolutions or things happen in these small types of changes. And what I thought was important is that I see this also play out, not just about um, war and peace, but also social issues that come up.
for example, um, I'll see some athlete is doing something to bring attention to racism. And, you know, I'll see it on Instagram. And then if you go in the comment section, almost no matter what, without a doubt, you'll find some kind of comment like in a obviously sarcastic tone. And then racism ended after this happened, basically. So it's making fun of how how much of a non-impact this event has. And oftentimes those things might not have an impact depending on what it is and sometimes might be virtue signaling, lots of things. But bringing awareness to something or bringing up a small change, it's not going to fix it. But the truth is no one thing fixes some complex issue. So if no one should do anything, unless it's going to completely solve something, then no one should do anything almost ever, especially if we're talking about anything significant. So if you want to deal with racism, then no one should do anything if they only should do something that completely solves it with one action. So whatever you do is going to be one step in that right direction. So you want to focus on the values and the process rather than just some end result. So you do also want to focus on the result of what it's doing in a smaller scale. Not that it's going to solve the issue, but you keep track of things as he says, we have to measure the things that we're doing when we're looking at things like peace and is it creating more peace, decreasing violence, those kinds of things. But recognize that don't think you're going to do something that's going to to fix that issue uh, completely or solve, lead to world peace when you have, let's say, two factions who've been fighting for years or decades. And so we have to be aware of that when we're helping others as well, because not only is this the sense of, is it you know big enough action, is it doing something, we know that when we see that the what we're doing is not going to completely fix a problem, this leads to us not wanting to help at all, which can feel or sound paradoxical, right? So there's uh, sometimes, you know, I, I use this image of, I think anyone, if I told you there's this five-year-old child outside your door who doesn't have food and they're right outside your door, do you want to help them? unless someone themselves really doesn't have enough, even if they didn't, they probably would help. But I think practically everyone would go help that child, bring them food, take care of them in whatever way. But then when I tell you there's 100,000 kids outside your door, you might feel so overwhelmed that you might do nothing because you think, I can't fix the problem. I can't help them all. And it creates all sorts of dilemmas and internal feelings that don't feel good that I'll get into a little bit more. And you might not help at all. Now, if they're right outside your door, you might do something. But really, that's the state of the world where there are hundreds of thousands, millions of people around the world still suffering from very avoidable types of problems and issues. But most of the time, myself included, we don't do anything about it. We don't actually help. And so there's, at times, it's called the collapse of compassion. I've heard other terms to describe this of the sense that when it's a few people are a small problem to fix. It seems like we care more than when there's actually more people suffering, which would seem like a paradox. Why would I care less when more people are suffering? But then when we try to understand this experience of compassion a little bit deeper, we can get a sense of why that might be. So when you see someone suffering, and if you feel in any way connected to them, even it could be an animal, of course, you don't feel good. That sense of compassion is this feeling bad for that person. It could be different from pity, where you're feeling sorry. It could just be the sense of, I can feel or experience that what you're going through is painful. It makes me not feel good. So you see someone and they are thirsty 
and you can see that they're in pain and you can feel something in yourself you don't feel you feel not at ease when you see them suffering let's say if they're really parched and they, they seem to be in pain or struggle and you have a cup of water as I do right in front of you and you give it to them and they drink that water and you see that relief on them and it gives relief to you too when you see their pain discomfort go away you also feel comforted by that that's what the compassion is doing it compels you in that way to want to help you help when they're okay then you feel okay but when you see that the problem is too big for you to help if it's 5,000 people thirsty and you only have that one cup of water you might feel even worse to get involved you almost want to avoid the whole thing because you know that you won't be able to take away that bad feeling within yourself because you give water to that one person you see them get satisfied but you still see 4,999 people thirsty and you're like, oh, that doesn't feel good so when we see that the problem is going to be too big for us to fix unfortunately it makes us less likely to help and so this is one of those things where I always encourage us to listen to our feelings to understand them but not to let them dictate what we do and also the better we understand them the better we can make good decisions using our feelings but also using our tools of logic and rational thinking to make what we think is the best decision so we want to come from a place that if we think suffering is bad unnecessary suffering is bad unnecessary suffering that i can do something about is bad and i should do something about it then that's what's driving us that process not unnecessary suffering that i know i'm going to eradicate completely in the world is the things i should take action on because then you really won't help much you might help someone right in front of you but you probably will realize that other people are suffering from that thing whatever it might be so we have to try to override that feeling and recognize that it comes up uh, this sense that because i won't be able to help completely resolve this issue maybe i shouldn't help at all and so we sometimes think you know we have to write the book on something and sometimes i think you're just writing a word in a book let's say if it's world peace or when it comes to racism or hunger or whatever the issue might be where we find that people are suffering you have to recognize that you are not going to fix that problem there's some i think it's a chinese proverb but um you know i'm actually forgetting what the beginning of it is but basically there's some type of wisdom or one of the most moral things you can do is to plant a tree that you will never sit under the shade of basically meaning that you plant this tree because you think it's the right thing to do even though you will never experience the benefits literally the fruits um, of that labor of that planting of that tree but because you think it's the right thing to do and so i think more and more we want to be driven by that as a value if helping others is the right thing to do that means that we have to recognize that this feeling is going to come up often should i do something about this well i can't fix it so i shouldn't and now we don't tend to go through that thinking that i just described there it happens automatically so some suffering exists you find out how big it is and quickly you come up with reasons why you don't need to help or you shouldn't help you know oh well oh there's one homeless person let's house that person there's 50,000 homeless people oh you know they probably bring it upon themselves some way or you know it's not even going to make a difference or I think a lot of them want to be homeless and so 
that makes sense. And you quickly will come up with reasons to justify really what you're feeling more than what you're thinking. So your feeling is, I don't think we can fix this. I don't know if it's solvable. And so you find reasons to justify why it's okay. There's also a psychological concept of a need for a just world. It just feels better to think, well, if someone's homeless, maybe it's their fault that they're homeless rather than it could be a systematic thing or something we're doing wrong as a society and we need to fix that. It's much easier to think, well, it's probably their fault. We also do this with rape victims and other types of victims where we just say, well, maybe they did something that created that problem, not that sometimes these types of things happen in the world. So that in combination with the sense that we can't fix it or we don't know how we would fix it makes us do some very quick mental gymnastics to justify not helping someone. But I really hope people will recognize that, that this is going to come up. It happens again naturally. You won't realize you're doing it until you slow down and think, well, why don't I want to help? Or why am I not doing something about whatever the issue is? Fill in the blank. And recognize we don't want to let that drive the decisions we make, this feeling that I'm not going to solve it all by myself. You're not going to solve practically any problem yourself, especially if it's a society-wide type of a issue. But to not let that stop us. Stopping any suffering is, is good. Think of a time when you were in some kind of pain, some kind of whether it's physical pain, emotional pain, and someone came and gave you relief. You were hurting really badly in some way, physically, let's say. Yeah, I use that example of being so thirsty, and let's say someone brought you a drink of water or some kind of physical pain, and some doctor or someone helped you. And remember what that feeling felt like. And so... To me, giving someone that feeling is never a waste. It's never not good for us to do that. It's always the right thing to do to relieve someone's suffering. And so we want to recognize the value in that and actually recognize we can devalue the feeling that's telling us it's not worth doing because we're afraid that we're still going to feel bad afterwards because if we get involved, the problem will still exist. All right, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in this last segment, I wanted to uh, continue on this theme of making small steps towards progress and relate it to our personal legacy, something that I've um, talked about in recent shows often because I think it's interesting. Uh, you know, we, I think when we try to understand ourselves and what motivates us, what drives us, even what we think of as moral and good, it can be important to try to understand where that might be coming from. Um, at least on Earth, we're probably the only species that could think about why we do things the way that we do, this type of metacognition, but also questioning and wondering about what we do and why we do the things that we do. And often we can recognize uh, what's driving us might not be what we want for ourselves if we actually think about it. Um, and so I think legacy is one of those things that falls under that umbrella for me when we Often people ask, you know, some kind of celebrity or someone, how do you want to be remembered? And I, I could si find some value in how you're remembered in the sense that how have you affected people and the world? So the world through whatever, usually again, if it's some celebrity or, you know, artist or someone, they've hopefully contributed something, but also how you'll be remembered by people, I think actually does matter in the sense of how you've affected them, the relationships you've created. But we often are thinking about things like legacy, like when we remember people from hundreds of years ago 
and uh, you know, for hopefully good reasons, of course, some for bad reasons. But people, I think, when we think of that, it feels good to imagine. Oh, imagine, you know, Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci, or great leaders, American leaders. Let's say Abraham Lincoln, uh, George Washington, the first president. People think, oh, it's so cool they're remembered and everyone knows their names. And so, what I find interesting is when we think about those things. George Washington, he doesn't experience us talking about him or every kindergarten student knowing he's the first U.S. president or for him being on money or those types of things. But what we do is when we think of something, we can only think of it from our own frame of experience. It's the same thing people do when they think about dying. It's like, oh, what will it be like? Well, it's like, depending on what you believe, uh, most people think your physical existence ends for sure. So you won't feel anything. You won't have an experience of, oh, this It'll feel like, uh, you know, something is going on or you'll miss out on something or it'll hurt in some way. You don't have any physical sensations, but you can only imagine it as now. So you imagine yourself dead. But of course, when you're dead, you don't feel anything. So it's a, it's a funny thing, but we still try to put ourselves in our own dead shoes, but you, you just don't exist. You don't have feet to put in, in the shoes to begin with. So you don't feel anything, but we still imagine it now. So just like we do other things, if you imagine being a baby, you imagine being you as a baby, what you feel. You know, it's like, oh, oh, I would hate, you know, doing this all day. Or oh, it would be so nice. People are taking care of you all the time. But a baby's experience is different. We we can't imagine what it's like or we can't feel that. And, of course, we do this as with animals, too. Oh, if I was a dog, that would be great. Or if I was this animal, I would hate it. Or if I was that animal, I would like it or dislike it. We're imagining us and how you experience the world and then now in that body and that experience. And so when we think of, you know, these people from the past that are remembered, it's what we think now. It would be so nice if everyone knew my name now. That's a feeling that we often can feel, the sense of being validated, appreciated, and seen as someone great to fight our own fears or feelings of being inferior or being not seen in some way seems really cool, really great. And so that might even drive someone for living a life a certain way so they get remembered and the history books remember them. I, I know in Hamilton, it's it's part one of the lines about you know the, how the history books remember you um, and that you actually can't control exactly how they're going to tell your story. Uh, that was a very <laughs> bad version of Hamilton. If you've ever seen it, some of the words were, were the same. Um, but you recognize that we can f care about things that don't matter. Why should it matter in 400 years how they remember your name? Now, I think it matters what you actually do, but focusing on how you'll be remembered can be the wrong way of approaching it if it affects what you do now. So, for example, if you were, uh, you know, I, I've thought about the vaccine that came for, for COVID and how it has been helpful and has definitely saved uh, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of lives. And I know, I know no matter what you talk about, it becomes political. So I don't mean to focus on that part of it, but just think of the vaccine in general or vaccines of the past. Um, but this vaccine, what I think is kind of cool is actually there's no one's name attached to it. Um, I'm forgetting some of the people in the past, so I won't even say them, who this person came up with this vaccine and this person came up with that vaccine or this type of treatment. And even that, sometimes they say there's a myth of this lone scientist uh, someone like Thomas Edison, he gets a lot of credit for inventions, but he had you know whole labs of people working and doing so many things. But I often think we can get so preoccupied with the uh, the name behind something rather than the impact that it has, and also the recognition that really, when we talk about some kind of advancement, yes, maybe one person did that last step, but there's 
usually hundreds of thousands of people and different things that have contributed contributed to getting to that point. So to focus on the name, this is the so-and-so's vaccine, um, I think it takes away from the reality of it and also can make us focus on the wrong things. So I actually like that there isn't one name attached to this vaccine. That person gets the credit and gets remembered because this is actually what affects what people do. Now, it's not just for how they're remembered, but you know, you can get recognition and make lots of money if your theory, if your whatever it is, is popular and accepted in science. So we see this time and time again that even though scientists and the field of science is about trying to achieve objectivity and being skeptical of things and trying to find some kind of truth, getting closer to a capital T truth, but however close we can get to those types of things, um, we see scientists very much affected by their own fame and notoriety and if their theory is being proven or supported or being not supported by someone where if we think about if they're being objective scientists they would not focus on these things they would just want the truth so if there there was evidence against their theory they'd be like oh let's hear it i'm excited we're you know it's all about falsifying things and understanding things better but we see that that doesn't happen we can understand it's the science and scientific method and things we talk about but they're human beings doing science and they're still going to have emotions and feelings and be impacted by things and how they go. So they're not just going to be focused on on those things. They're not going to be purely scientific. And this is actually why uh, communities are important for things like science. Um, Naomi Oreskes, was that her book? Why Trust Science, I think. Um, and in that book, she talked about how individual scientists will always be biased. That's just part of being human because they're human, they'll be biased. But when we have communities and diverse pools of people who are scientists in different fields, the biases tend to be more likely to wash out in a way. So there's less likely to be biases when we have a diverse group of people who are involved uh, in something, in some type of a scientific field or, or venture. It's more likely that we have those biases at least become less. We reduce that impact or the likelihood of a bias. So we see that even in science where it's driven by searching for truth and objectivity, that human beings get involved and the emotions get involved and unfortunately interferes with that. But anyway, this was kind of a, a digression on this point on when we try to attribute one name to something, we focus on being remembered because we, we think that that's going to be something that feels good to us. Again, you won't feel that feeling, but it feels good to us. I also think it's related to the sense of when we think of a legacy there could be some type of a way that cognitively it feels like the biological passing on of our lineage. So you say legacy and lineage, there are similar types of concepts with the sense that my, my name passes on. Right? When we think of your name being passed on, people say this for family lineages. And sometimes even it's this thing of having a male heir who will pass on the name. So it's like you're still existing in some way which has some type of a biological sense of your genes being passed on or you're still alive through your legacy in some way. And I think it's understandable that feeling comes up, but I think most people recognize that that's not something they want to drive their actions. Um, I even think also when we consider ourselves as human beings, uh, I sometimes think we have to be careful not to put ourselves up and idealize us too much. People have done that throughout history, types of like human exceptionalism, but there are some ways that we can recognize that we function 
in ways that are very different from our purely biological roots. Now, everything I think still comes down to some type of explanation that we can see in evolution of why we care about certain things, which is some of the things that I'm talking about today. But when we consider human beings as organisms and organisms trying to pass on their genes or the genes trying to be passed on in whatever way you want to formulate it, uh, most people are not focused on that. You know, even if we look at sexual experiences among human beings, rather than it's something that we're trying to procreate, most of the time, most people are having sexual experiences. They're trying to make sure they don't get someone pregnant or get pregnant or have a child. They're trying to prevent that from happening. So we can see that our type of just trying to pass on our genes and as many as possible is not the goals that almost any human being has, even though as a biological being, that is how we think of as the thing that matters the most. In some ways, we can say we've transcended that. I don't know if that itself would be a type of human exceptionalism, but there's ways we've transcended that, that most people don't think of their life as how many of my offspring survive or how many offspring I have. They think of it more of things like purpose and meaning, or sometimes they don't even think about it and we go through life without realizing what's driving us. And this is why I do think it's so important to take these steps to think of what's driving me and what I'm trying to create in my life or the life I'm trying to create for myself to experience. And what we'll see is that if we don't think about it, the things that will drive us will be a lot of these different types of biological urges and drives that can have pleasure and good feelings that could be part of a good life, but they tend not to be the end all be all of what's going to make someone live a good life or feel good about their life. So when you coming back to this concept of legacy and what you do with your time, it's very possible that if you do a lot of good things, people will remember you. But I would hope that you recognize that what you're doing and how you do it to focus more on the good that you're doing than how you're being remembered for it or how people in the future will remember you. So if you're going to create a school and you can create it by yourself and name it after yourself, and that way it's your name on the school and people might remember it, it might last a while, or you can create a better school by collab collaborating with other people, but your name won't be on it anymore, but it'll help more children. I would hope you recognize that, yes, there's this urge, it feels nice to have my name on the school and people to attribute it to me, but I want to do good with this school. So let me let that be the drive, the value and the process that's driving it rather than having my name on it and being known for doing something good. So these are just some thoughts on some of this, these issues that come up related to legacy, also related to what you're doing. Because you might think, well, if I solve some type of issue, if I can make myself, you know, if I fix something, then my name might be attached to it. But if you just contribute to something, you likely won't be remembered. If you just are one volunteer amongst thousands that do something. And so unfortunately, I think because of that, people sometimes go for these grand gestures, grand ideas, grand plans. It doesn't mean we shouldn't want to make big changes. That makes sense. But we're also driven sometimes by this idea that I'm going to create this huge change and be remembered for it forever. could also be a driver, which I think is the wrong thing to be driving us. If you want to do good because you think it's good, which I think would be the best reason to do something, then you want to do the most good and the right good rather than the one that will be necessarily remembered more than something else. 
And you might recognize that doing things in small steps usually is the ways to progress rather than trying to figure out some huge way to make some huge impact that everyone will see. So try to make a big impact for the right reasons that it helps people, but not necessarily because it helps get your name out there or makes you well known for that. And I want to leave a minute or two here at the end of the show. So I'm right now here with Amir uh, in the studio. You probably hear me most Monday nights. I say thank you to Amir here in the studio before I say goodnight. And Amir is here with me and this uh, weekend. Very happy to be going to his wedding uh, to Roya. Him and Roya will be getting married this weekend. Looking forward to being there, having a good time. But also just want to say congratulations to him. If you've listened to my show, as I said, practically every Monday for going on, I think almost eight years, um, he's been here with me consistently, making sure I'm sounding the best that I possibly can and taking care of things. And so uh, a pleasure to see him taking this next step in his life and to celebrate with him. And just wanted to say congratulations to him and thank you for all the times here in the studio. So as I'm signing off, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fayyad Hope you have a wonderful night. Thank you.